Welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the Pura Pad. I'm your friend David Pierce, and I'm doing like the only thing any of us have been doing the last couple of weeks. I'm playing The Legend of Zelda: Tears of the Kingdom. I'm still pretty early in the game, and I only like just a minute ago discovered that I can stick a rock to a tree branch, and suddenly I have the coolest bludgeoning weapon ever. So that's neat. Big fan of that. Anyway, we have a great show for you today. We're going to talk about AM radio and why there's suddenly a big fight about whether your car should have it going forward. We're also going to talk about the 50th anniversary of Ethernet and the future of super fast wired connections. I'm just realizing this as I say it, but we're kind of doing an old tech still matters thing this week, and I dig that. And lastly, we're going to talk about Tears of the Kingdom, what makes this game special, why we can't stop playing it, and what the rest of the gaming industry should do about it. All that's coming in just a second, but first I have to figure out how to get to the shrine over there without falling down the waterfall for like the 56th time. Here goes nothing. This is The Vergecast. We'll be right back. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com US engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Welcome back. You may not have even noticed this or may not even care, but over the last few years, there's been a slow push to remove AM radio from cars. Tesla did it in 2018, and since then, Ford, BMW, Volkswagen, and a bunch of other companies have said that especially as we move to electric vehicles, AM radio should leave cars. Basically, the car makers argue that EVs can cause electric interference that shows up on AM radio, which seems simple enough, and it's certainly true that there are other ways to get radio-style content in your car. But some folks, including some lawmakers, argue that AM radio is important, and it's important for much more than just delivering radio stations. Ed Markey, a U.S. senator from Massachusetts, has been leading the charge to keep AM radio around. Neelai recently jumped on the phone with Markey to talk about why he cares about AM radio, why he's introducing a bill that would keep it in cars for the future, why he thinks this isn't really about interference, and much more. Check it out. Senator Ed Markey, welcome to Vergecast. How are you? Oh, great to be with you. I'm glad you're joining the show. We've got to talk about the most pressing issue of our time, which is the future of AM radio in cars. You introduced a bill today with Ted Cruz, which I want to talk about, called the AM for Every Vehicle Act. What is the AM for Every Vehicle Act? Well, (laughs) AMEV. And the reason we made it every vehicle is the EV, which is the new vehicles, which 
Tesla and Ford and other companies are saying is just too complicated to figure out how to put in new all-electric vehicles uh, because of the electromagnetic interference. And at the same time, however, Kia, Hyundai, Honda, Toyota, Chrysler, they have all figured out how to put it (laughs) in their new all-electric vehicles. So it does get a little bit uh, concerning, let's be honest. I mean, Tesla is partnered with SpaceX, and SpaceX is trying to figure out how to put people on the moon. And then when you say, can you figure out how to put AM radio in cars, they go, oh, you have no idea how complicated that is. You don't know how complicated that electric vehicle technology is. We could never figure out how to get through that electromagnetic uh, interference. (laughs) So it's hard to believe, however, that Kia and Hyundai and Chrysler and Toyota and others are all figuring it out. And I guess what I suspect is they want to put all information behind a paywall. They want people to have to pay for information in cars in the future. And as we know, beginning in... 1920 with KDKA radio station in Pittsburgh, AM radio has been free. And I guess that just kind of runs contrary to the business uh, plans of some of these auto manufacturers. Uh, They want it all behind a paywall. You have to uh, pony up if you want to have access to information. And my feeling is AM radio has served as an incredible public safety protection in our country, especially in cars that people can use in order to navigate uh, during times of uh, trouble. And that it's absolutely unacceptable that they're going to remove that technology from electric vehicles using the flimsy (laughs) case that they can't figure out how to make it work. All right, let me push you on this. One, they are keeping the FM radios in the car, right? They haven't said they're going to take those out yet. So maybe they're not pushing entirely towards a subscription future. I suspect they they want to. I agree with you. But the FM radios are staying in the car. Two, all these cars are different, right? The, The Hyundai powertrain is different than the Tesla powertrain is different than the Ford powertrain. So have they provided any evidence that, hey, maybe it is difficult to you or are they just saying it to you? Well, I would say that I haven't seen the evidence. I'm not convinced. Again, we're talking about Tesla. We're talking about SpaceX, you know, Mm -hmm. why they can't figure out, you know, how to handle the interference uh, issues. I just think they don't want to do it. Okay. They're moving on. Ford is calling AM an obsolete technology. So from my perspective, that's what we're disputing. It's not an obsolete technology. Uh, Tens of millions of people still use it every single week. And I know on my radio dial... Up in Boston, it's on 103, 1030 a.m., WBZ a.m., <laughs> and I've got it on, and I've had it on my entire life. Yes, I have an FM channel as well, but I rely upon the all-news WBZ AM 103, you know, to get immediate up-to-the-minute news information, and if I need it, safety information as well. So it's not an obsolete technology. Ford is wrong. Tesla, with its crocodile tears, is wrong that they can't figure it out technologically while bragging that they're making the most technologically (laughs) sophisticated vehicles uh, known to mankind. It's just absolutely not believable. So when it comes to technology and obsolescence, yes, there's a lot of planned obsolescence in the technology industry. A lot of software support goes away, all those sorts of things. But this one is they can measure who's using what bands in the cars, especially with modern infotainment systems, if they're saying, look, a brand new Mustang customer is likely never to use the AM radio, 
isn't that a market decision and people like you who want to listen to your favorite AM radio station will just buy a Kia instead? Well, what about when the car is becomes a used car? Is the yeah. person they sell it to also not an AM radio listener? They might be a little poorer than the original owner. They might not be able to pay for or want to pay for some more sophisticated um, internet-delivered information. I just think that the option should remain there. It's been in cars for 100 years, and it doesn't make any sense to remove something that has been there and servicing our country for all of those years. So, no, (laughs) I think that the choice should be there, and some of these cars are going to be around for 20 years, and we should ensure that that option remains technologically available. But don't you think that if enough people think AM is important, they'll all go by Kias and Ford will have to figure out how to solve the interference problems they're claiming? From my perspective, I don't think that should be an option. I think we should look at it from a FEMA perspective. We should look at it from a public safety perspective. We should look at it from the perspective of needing uh, to have that information be made available uh, to uh, consumers for when they need it. They might not be thinking as they're walking around a dealership, well, maybe there's going to be a tornado you know, coming through my hometown due to climate change in, in eight more years, and I might want to have AM radio. So that's kind of from my perspective, how I view it. You know, the, For example, uh, WBZ AM up in Boston, uh, it's actually got a hardened facility down on the South Shore that can withstand almost any level of tornado or hurricane, meaning it will broadcast through any kind of an emergency. And I don't think it's reasonable to say that people should have to be stripped of the ability to have that technology available to them when they might need it at some indeterminate point in the future because they haven't been studying climate models as closely (laughs) as they should. So, for example... In Greater Boston, Boston Harbor, the Gulf of Maine, is the second fastest warming body of water in the world, meaning we're heading for some real tough times in the years ahead, and we need to make sure that we're able to uh, have the the safety protections that remain in place in order to give them the the warnings before something catastrophic happens to them or to their families. Talk me through the process here. Who came to you and said, we need to introduce a bill to keep AM radios in cars. Where did this idea come from? Well, AM, the AM radio, the National Association of Broadcasters, came to me. I've been on the telecommunications committee. Yeah. That, you and I have talked several times because of your role on that, on that committee. I've been on the telecommunications committee since the first day I joined the Congress decades ago. So they know of my interest in this issue in general. And they know that I believe that technologies have to be made in a way that serves the public interest. And they have to have a universal quality to them. So that's the constitution of the Telecommunications Act of 1934. Universal access. And so AM radio played that role in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And then we added in the 60s and 70s FM radio. But still at its core, it's a staple. And the National Association of Broadcasters knew that I would want to keep that in place because it is affordable at the price of being free. But it also is an emergency warning system that will help people who otherwise might, in fact, fall victim to natural uh, catastrophes that uh, were otherwise capable of giving people the warning they would need in order to protect their families. 
And the NAB thinks they can't move that to the FM stations that they operate? Because again, the FM radios are staying in the cars. Well, AM radio is a very simple thing for them to continue to provide. You don't have to make a choice. This is a, a classic situation where FEMA built its emergency alert system around AM radio. So the auto manufacturers are saying to FEMA, saying to the federal government, hey, junk this whole plan that you've always had you know, <laughs> and just move it. Yeah, even though we already have a system that is an AM radio system, you know, that has worked and worked effectively for generations. Okay, I need to know the answer to this question. You are one of the co-sponsors. The other co-sponsor is Ted Cruz. It is not often that you and Ted Cruz are on the same side of an issue. And it's certainly not often that a Republican like Ted Cruz is out here mandating what a very competitive what what players in a very competitive market like the auto industry should should do. How did you end up on the same side of this issue as Ted Cruz? How did you end up co-sponsoring the bill? Well, we don't disagree on everything. There are many issues we do, and you know that, that's a long, long, long list. But when you're on the technology committee, and that's where yeah. we serve. We serve on the Commerce Committee. We serve on the committee with jurisdiction over telecommunications. Sometimes you have to work really hard to make that Democrat or Republican. It's technology. The only question is, how do you want to animate that technology with the human values, which we've had in all of the preceding you know, technology debates? And so from my perspective, what I've seen over and over again is as the innovation occurs, that new innovation says, we don't need those old values. We don't need them to be brought along. It's an all new era. It's almost like the internet people say, we don't need a privacy bill of rights. We don't need to make sure it's accessible in schools for uh, children. So I can't speak for Ted Cruz, but AM radio actually is something that I think we both believe supports the whole concept of media diversity, that there's a, a thousand flowers can bloom and you can smell whatever one you want on AM radio or FM or on the internet, but let's not subtract from this garden, uh, which has been carefully constructed over a hundred years. We don't have to eliminate in order to allow for a proliferation of new sources, and especially when, especially because of the emergency response capability of AM radio and the, and the dependency which people have upon it that uh, is, is central to what AM has always played as a role in American society. Is this a situation where the bill is out now, the automakers are going to read it, and you hope and they soften their stance? Or do you think you have to push this through all the way and make it law in order for Tesla to figure out how to put an AM radio in the car? I think it's going to be hard to get them to fold. It, it's mm -hmm. not their nature. I think we're actually going to have to pass this law. I wish that we could ensure that we would have universal response from the auto industry. I don't think that's going to be the case. So we're not seeing this as something meant to soften. I, I sent six months ago letters to all of the auto manufacturers. None of them softened. You know, after I sent them the letters, the ones that said they're going to do it, they're going to continue to do it. The ones that said they're not going to do it, uh, they're going to continue not to do it. So from my perspective, I think it's going to require a law and then the regulations promulgated by NHTSA uh, consistent with that law. How long do you think that process takes? Well, I think when Ted Cruz and Ed Markey support something, and we're both on as senior members of the <laughs> Commerce Committee, I think we got a pretty good shot of, uh, of moving this. I, I, I know who I can talk to, and he, you put it together with him. I think we've got the 60 votes in the Senate we're going to need in order to move it. Congress is pretty deadlocked. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. Do you think this is going to happen soon, or do you think this is when things calm down, you can move this one through? 
I don't think just because um, we're having a default crisis in the country, just because <laughs> we have a Supreme Court uh, in chaos, that we can't simultaneously work to protect AM radio. I think we can do uh, all of those things simultaneously. And in fact, this might be kind of relief valve where Democrats and Republicans actually come together and stop fighting uh, to do something which is good uh, in finding common ground. Maybe we can use that for, as a building block for other issue areas. AM radio is going to bring us all back together. This is this is the thing you've been saying the whole time. AM radio just, to me, sings of our great American automotive history, especially, and, and the role that it's played in the <laughs> lives of just about every American family. And I, and I do believe that it's not a nostalgia for a time gone by, but a recognition of its continued relevance that's going to have... Ted Cruz, Ed Markey, and our left and right allies coming together and isolating Tesla and Ford and Polestar <laughs> and the other companies who say that they can't figure it out. It's just too technologically complicated. We can get an FM station in there. We can't figure out AM. And so we're going to help them to uh, focus on the problem better. And I'm highly confident that ultimately we will be successful. Very good. I can't let you go without asking you one question about net neutrality. We, you and I have talked about it so many times in the past. President Biden nominated Gigi Sohn. It, it didn't go anywhere. She withdrew. What is happening with the FCC? What is happening with net neutrality right now? It's a tragedy what happened to Gigi Sohn. Obviously, many, many industries out there hated her progressive past and projected it onto her being a progressive voice uh, at the Federal Communications Commission. So my hope is that we can find a, a fifth commissioner for the FCC so that we can move forward on, on privacy, move forward on net neutrality, move forward on other important issues. But it was a historic loss, her inability to get the 51 votes that we would need. But I know one thing, we need a full Federal Communications Commission. Yeah. If we go all four years of the Biden administration without a full Federal Communications Commission, we have lost an incredible historic opportunity to put an imprint of, of inclusivity, of fairness, and Darwinian competition built into the marketplace led by net neutrality and other principles that should be enshrined into American law. Is there anybody you have in mind for that fifth slot or waiting to see what happens? I know that they're vetting several people right now. I've seen some of the names. I, I'm not 100% confident who ultimately they're going to name, but all I'm asking is that they do believe in net neutrality. They do believe in uh, protecting the children of our country. Uh, they do believe in Darwinian paranoia-inducing competition in <laughs> industry. That's all I could hope from a Democratic nominee. And obviously you hope that they believe in AM radio. And above all, AM <laughs> radio. You know, it's almost, it, it, it was the original internet. In 1920, when KDKA went on the air in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that was the first time that mass communication really began in our country. And then city after city after city deployed. And then actually at dark on many frequencies across the country, by law, interfering stations had to go off the air. So even down here in the District of Columbia, when I'm driving home at night, I can listen to WBZ AM in Boston. 103, because all channels have to clear after dark. So it was the first time that we actually began to have national communication. That's really what AM uh, radio instituted in our nation. And from my perspective, I'm 
not going to stand by silently while a new generation of tech geniuses decide they have to kill the old in order to begin the new. No, they can coexist. We have more than enough bandwidth to keep the old and the new coexisting in perpetuity so that everyone can have a choice as to which of those means of communication they want to take advantage of. Very good. Well, Senator, thank you so much for joining us and and taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate it. No, great to be with you. Thank you. All right. We need to take a break. And then we're going to talk about another old technology that maybe still matters more than you think. Ethernet. We'll be right back. Support of The Vergecast comes from Shopify. Whether you're a huge company or a small crafter trying to make a buck off your hobby, selling online is one of the best ways to grow. Shopify is one of the top e-commerce platforms that you can use to get started. But it's not just online. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And you can sell wherever, online or with their in-person point of sale system. You can also sell more with less effort with their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. You might recognize more brands who already use Shopify, like Rothy's, Brooklinen, Allbirds, and more. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vergecast. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash vergecast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vergecast. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome back. This year is the 50th anniversary of one of the most important technologies ever created, without which we wouldn't have most of the connected experiences we have. Ethernet. Good old-fashioned wired internet. Those weird, clicky plugs kind of make the world go round. You're probably listening to this, though, on a device connected either to Wi-Fi or a cellular network, so you might be like, okay, cool, Ethernet was great, but who has wired connections anymore? Well, (laughs) I'm glad you asked. We have a whole series of stories about why Ethernet still matters on TheVerge.com. I'll put that in the show notes. That question was also the subject of a VergeCast Live we did this week in partnership with the Computer History Museum. They hosted a big event for the anniversary. Bob Metcalf, one of the co-creators of Ethernet, was there. He's a big celebrity, did a Q&A. It was pretty cool. And as part of the event, Alex, along with The Verge's Sean Hollister, sat down with Kevin Deerling, the SVP of networking at NVIDIA, to talk about not just the last 50 years of wires, but the present and future of super fast cable internet. It was a great conversation. I learned a ton, so I figured we'd play you a chunk of the event. Here it is. Um, hello. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. So last week, I moved, and the first thing I set up wasn't the toilet paper. It wasn't the Plex server, actually, but I'm getting there. It wasn't the toilet paper. It wasn't all my clothes. It wasn't my kitchen. It was my network. And that's because networking is so, so important. That's why we're all here tonight, right? Like we're celebrating networking. We're celebrating the history of it and what they did back in 1973. And 
I just really wanted to talk about that. And at The Verge, we like to talk about the future of this stuff, right? We do. We do. And so we wanted to talk about the future of networking. And we thought, what better people to talk to than someone from NVIDIA who's always thinking about the future of networking and the future of computing. So we've got Kevin Deerling. He's the Senior Vice President of Networking at NVIDIA. He's joining us here tonight. So please welcome Kevin. Thanks. Thanks. All right, we're going to go ahead and sit down. And Kevin, I'm just going to start straight out of the gate. The, the folks asked Bob during the Q&A, is Ethernet going to be involved in quantum computing? And he didn't know, but I think you probably do. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting. Quantum computing is using qubits. And the problem, they're scaling up the number of qubits. Uh-huh. But qubits are in different states. They're not ones and zeros. Right. Sometimes they're in the wrong state. There's errors in it. And so what's limiting it is actually how many qubits we can get. We have to do a lot of error correction. And it turns out that getting the data into a computer and correcting it is going to use a ton of conventional networking and a ton of AI. So they're actually deeply connected. We're also using quantum computing for something called quantum entanglement, for doing encryption and secret keys. So they're intimately related. They really are. Is there a bandwidth limit? Is there like a, or a bandwidth minimum, I would say? A minimum. That's a good question. I think that we have some fundamental laws of physics. You know, when you hear about what they were doing at 2.94 megabits per second and 340 nanoseconds, today we're broadcasting, you know, 100 gigabits, soon 200 gigabits per second. We're measuring this, the light pulses. If you could see them, they would be that long. They would be picoseconds. So there are some fundamental limits. We're actually fundamentally limited in terms of the distances we can travel. And the faster we go, the shorter distances we can travel on copper, for example. Right. Okay. Another question that was asked was, how close are we to terabit Ethernet with just one lane? With just one lane. That's a tricky question. So we can do it today. But what Bob said on top of that is we have to do it with one lambda. So one of the ways that we can communicate more, we do something called amplitude. You send not just a one and a zero, we send two bits or four bits. So we have something called PAM4. But with light, we can do something really interesting. We can actually send different wavelengths down the same fiber. And when we do that, if you do CWDM, you have four. So if we could get to 250 gigabits, we're right on the edge of that. Four lambda, that's a terabit on one fiber. So that's pretty close. That's cool. It's easy to look ahead the next 50 years and say that speeds are going to get faster and faster because we're always improving speeds. Uh, originally, uh, Bob was saying that we went to three megabits was like 10,000 times faster than what you had before. Uh, if we're talking about eventually 1.2 terabit per second, then we've got 100 times 1,000 faster than, we're getting, we're getting close to 100 times 1,000 faster than that. What happens when uh, that network actually proliferates, though? We see those speeds in very small lengths of cable. We see that in the data center. But I want you to paint a picture for us of what connectivity looks like across the country, across the world, as those speeds get that quick. Yeah, so I think, you know, what's interesting, even today with before AI, before generative AI, you would do something into a data center through your network connection, 
And that, we call that north-south traffic that's going into the data center. And what that would then do is spawn a thousand times more traffic because they're actually holding an auction to advertise to you, yeah. to your eyeballs. They're figuring out everything that you've done. You know, I was looking at, I'm going fly fishing, so I was looking at a fly rod. They're going to show me a fly rod because I looked at it yesterday. And so there's a thousand times more traffic going on on that east-west traffic than there is on the north-south. That's going to explode another thousand-fold with AI now. The amount of east-west traffic and on top of that, generative AI is going to be generating really rich content coming back. It's going to be talking, it's going to be visual images, it's going to be generated on the fly. So we're going to need both. We're going to need the broadband connectivity and then massive amounts of east-west connection inside the data center. Are we getting close to the holodeck with all of that, uh, all that connectivity <laughs> and all that generative AI behind it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, today the digital twin is really part of what is AI. And people think they hear about the metaverse. We, we talk about the omniverse because we think it's more than just avatars and gaming. It is that. But we're actually going to build digital twins of everything, of human beings. They're using that for robotics and AI. When you're actually operating on somebody, you'll have a CT image that's going to be overlaid on top of somebody that's doing robotic surgery. We're building factories down to the light and all of the robots that are coming in, interacting with humans. You're going to fail in the virtual world quickly so that you can succeed in the real world very, very fast. So don't make your mistakes on a building, make it on a digital twin of the building yeah. and then build the building right. So that's how we are gonna avoid things like those, those death ray buildings, right? Exactly, exactly. Very excited to avoid those, melting all the cars. One of the things we heard a lot of the uh, innovators talk about on stage is the importance of standards and the importance of being able to construct something that works across multiple companies. I don't know if I've heard of a particular standard yet for what the metaverse, what this digital world that NVIDIA wants to make a, a clone of the real world, how that comes to pass in an open way. Do you know, is that a thing that you see on the horizon that all of these video game companies and technology companies band together around something? And what can you envision for us what that something might be? Yeah, so I think we're already embracing all kinds of open standards. So if you look at the, what we call the omniverse, these digital twins, it's actually based on something that came out of the graphics video world, okay, which is a universal scene description. And so you can actually model physical light reflection of metal. You can look at sandpaper. You can look at the weight of things, the friction of things as they're sliding. We model everything down to the real physics so that it's completely accurate. And you have to do that for gaming. That's what it came out of. Turns out it's really useful for doing things like digital cars, okay? If you're doing a self-driving car, then there's a couple of ways you can get all that data. One way is you drive for millions of hours, collect all the data. The other way is you create a digital twin of the entire Earth, and you train on that data. And you can do weird things that actually might happen once in a while. We had snow in the Bay Area this year. So you can put snow in the middle of the desert. We can create a digital world and train off of that synthetic data. So absolutely, you can do this. And I think we're seeing lots of standards being embraced because if you have an open standard that can, people can develop on top of, more people will do it. It grows the ecosystem. We love doing that. Right. 
So, I mean, NVIDIA is very, very good at the GPU side of things, at the graphics. And what we quickly learned was that GPUs were really good for neural networks. And there's, a, I think one of the things that Bob talked about was that one of the limitations of AI is, is these neural networks and what they can do. How do we expand the connectivity there? Yeah, so the, the thing that's interesting about a neural network is he talked about the limitation being the data, the amount of data. And we had this strange thing happen over the last decade, which was the internet yeah. and the World Wide Web. And suddenly there's just this massive amount of data that you can actually access. Public domain, go out, scrape the entire data, put it into a data center. It is a massive amount of information. So to train against that, there is no computer in the world that can hold all of the data. I heard when Google started, that was the request that Sergey had. He says, I want a computer that can hold the entire data of the internet. And back then, it was actually almost possible. Today, absolutely not. <laughs> so if you think about it, we heard earlier, Andy was talking about that when Sun was founded, the network is com the computer. That was the theme of Sun. But those were separate computers that could talk to each other individually. Today, it's not a computer with sheet metal around it. It's the data center is the computer. And the networking that's part of that is part of that computer. So networking is critical to be able to access all of that data that you need to be able to do to do the huge neural networks for large language models. How important is the concept of Ethernet and the concept of the wired connectivity that underpins it going to be to all of us and all the, the, you know, the young children that are going to be born and living 50 years in the future? How much are they going to need to think about that living in a world where uh, they have all the cellular connectivity, they have the... 5G will turn into 6G and 7G. And how much of that is a thing that we explain to them is underpinning invisibly behind the scenes? Yeah, so I think there's, I'm old enough, I actually remember the, the coax cable with those little plugs that you had to put in. I was a freshman in college at Berkeley and I was connecting all of the professor's office with that ethernet. Okay, so I lived this stuff. And I remember I was in Patterson's office, who was one of the pioneers of risk computing, reduced and such and set computing, David Patterson. And uh, I asked him, I said, what is risk? And he looked at me and he said, what is your major? And I said, physics. And he said, you don't need to know. <laughs> so, so I connected that. I think over a period of time, people are, you know, you plugged in your network. I think that even with broadband connectivity through wireless, through 5G, I think that plug is going to exist. I think the Cat5 cable, 25 years from now, somebody's still gonna be running that Cat cable. I made a mistake when I built my house. I said, you know what, wireless, we're almost there. It's almost good enough. I'm not gonna wire my house with fiber and copper. I really wish I'd done that because now I've been up in the attic putting the copper back in. <laughs> Anytime you're trying to download a game to, to your PS5, you're like, oh, I wish I'd, I did. I'd use power lines, something there. Okay, I want to piggyback off this. How long, how, you know, you asked about, are we going to have to teach our kids what, what Ethernet is? Are we still going to, how long are we going to still have to teach our kids the difference between an Ethernet cable and a phone cable? <laughs> well, I don't think people even know what phone cables are anymore. <laughs> Ethernet has already outlived PSTN. I have, I have a POTS line at my house just because we have a really hard time to get broadband connectivity. But, but I don't think many people know what POTS lines are. I mean, yeah. really, I don't think people will be using those jacks anymore. I think that RJ45 for Cat5 cables and Cat10, et cetera, it's going to persist. 
The other thing that was interesting that Bob said tonight, which I thought was spot on, you know, he said before there's Ethernet and Ethernet. Anything that's not Ethernet is Ethernet. It turns out that even Ethernet is Ethernet. <laughs> because he said today, he said that every time that, you know, we completely changed the standard, none of the things that are in the, the CSMA CD that they were talking about, none of that exists anymore. Everything's point to point. There was no shared media, but they just keep calling it Ethernet. So while I'm saying that Ethernet will be around in 25 years, it's not going to be the same. We yeah. see convergences of technology all the time. We do other technologies for networking. What do you think it's going to be? What are those next ones we should be looking at? I think you're going to see a much more intelligent network. So when I talked about, you know, the network as the computer was Sun 1984. Mm -hmm. Today, the data center is the new unit of computing. When we accelerate things with a GPU, we're talking, you know, Moore's law has slowed down. It used to double the performance of semiconductors every two years. It's not happening anymore. The speeds of CPUs plateaued a decade ago, but we're doing other things, architectural things to accelerate AI. And as we do that, we've increased over the last decade, a million fold, the performance of a GPU running AI all kinds of innovations. Architecture matters again. We can't just rely on semiconductor processing to do that. What's happening when you speed something up a million fold, it turns out that all that networking and communication becomes the bottleneck. Yeah. The network becomes the bottleneck. So what I think you'll see in the future is the network become really part of the computing. As all of these different boxes, they're part of the same computer we are already seeing that you process the data as it's moving through the network. So somebody once said that, you know, how do you speed up a, a Domino's pizza delivery? Okay, it's easy to make more pizzas. Mm -hmm. You can buy more pizza ovens. But how do you get it faster than half an hour to the home? Because it, you take the order, you make the pizza, you put the cheese on it and put it in the oven, and then it bakes for 15 minutes. Well, one way you can make things faster is to put the ovens in the truck. That's yeah. delivering the pizzas. That's what I think you'll see with Ethernet. Are you talking about from one node to the next node um, so that within your, within your server rack or within your GPU? Or are we talking about beyond that? We're talking about optical internet connects on the chips themselves and things like that. That's happening too. I'm actually talking about data being processed as it's moving through the network. Mm. So if your computer is now a bunch of different nodes, you should be able to process with AI networks and neural networks, they do a bunch of work, and then all of the GPUs need to share information to do the next round of work. And that sharing of information is becoming the bottleneck. So we have huge amounts of bandwidth, and the network's becoming really intelligent. The network is literally a computer. So instead of the network is a computer, it really is a computer. <laughs> I mean, I'm about to say a dirty word, which is Wi-Fi. I feel like it's a dirty word tonight. Gener and generally, Wi-Fi is great. But Wi-Fi does have a lot of limitations. Does that mean we're going to see maybe less Wi-Fi with this, like, the Internet is in all these nodes and, and doing the computation there? Can Wi-Fi keep up with that? Or is it going to yeah. kind of be more reliant on... If Bob were here, I've heard him say it. He would say that Wi-Fi was originally called wireless Ethernet. <laughs> so if we call it wireless Ethernet, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. And, and, you know, different horses for different courses. In the home, you know, look, 
I'm, I'm connected all the time. I've got multiple devices. I've got Bluetooth connections. I've got Wi-Fi connections, and I have wired connections. If only I had a broadband connection, then I'd be really happy. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about that because you live in the Bay Area. I do, and you don't have broadband. I have broadband. So so you know when you look at that access of uh, what you know broadband communication. They talk about a couple of things that it has to be accessible, it has to be affordable, and then it has to be usable. You have to know how to use it. And so I'm a technologist, I know how to use it. I'm fortunate in that I can afford to pay for things, but like my neighbor, for example, he pays for a T1 line. Mm -hmm. And that's 1.544 megabits per second. It's slower than the first generation of ethernet from 1975. Hey, I was really jealous of neighbors with a T1 line Back in 95. Back in 95, <laughs> exactly. Well, he's got it for his weather station. He's paying six or $700 a month <sighs> for 1.544 megabits. I happen to be the very last phone line from uh, Half Moon Bay. It's 30 kilometers away. I can't do DSL. I can't do anything. So, so I pay for a satellite connection. And as long as it's not foggy, uh, and as long as a lot of people aren't using it, it works great. As long as there are no tall trees. No tall trees. Yeah. yeah. I fought for two years to get AT&T to put fiber to my house because they buried the node two houses away. It's, yeah. But I think, I think actually, you know, one of the things we're doing with AI is we're working with a ton of the 5G companies. So I think 5G can start to address some of that broadband connectivity in rural areas, also in urban areas. Yeah. It turns out that just the placement, because the, the cells are so much smaller now. And there's all kinds of reflections in, you know, they call it uh, sort of an urban jungle, where instead of trees, it's giant skyscrapers in Manhattan or something. We're actually modeling with AI all of the reflections off of buildings and figuring out where the optimal placement to get the most reach and the oh, best that's performance. Cool. Well, I kind of I want to toss this one to Sean because I hear that a lot. Five G is gonna is gonna change things. It's gonna improve that connectivity, but five G is still run by the big networks, and they have they have demands like you can't download too many things at a time, that sort of thing. Sean, do you think five yeah. G is gonna? So many unlimited plans that are not <laughs> unlimited. Uh, so much, so much, so many promises about being able to download your entire uh, your entire TV series before you get on the airplane, yeah. and then the airport has barely any 5G connectivity, and it's technically LTE rebranded as 5G. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's difficult right now because we're in this intermediate period, but it does feel like every time they do have a leap, that the cellular does get faster and more desirable than it was the last time and that you do get to a place where at some point you don't necessarily need the ethernet cable or the fiber cable you know the coaxial cable the coaxial or the fiber cable running to your home do i a technologist and, and, and verge editor want to have 5g instead of a physical line come in my house absolutely not but we're, i can see people who are growing up with their phones as their only computers i can see them not only liking that but preferring that to all the complications that come with a wired house in the future. Do you think people are going to be okay with the trade-offs there? Because the, these, the big telecom companies, they have a much stronger control of their networks in a way that the, IS, the traditional ISPs don't. This is what I'm don't. worried about. And I know the analogy of, you know, you, you, the idea that a frog... I'm just teeing them up for this rant. 
The idea that way. a frog jumping into a pot of boiling water, you know, you got, you got the pot of water and you slowly bring it up to a boil. This isn't actually true that a frog doesn't feel pain as they're being boiled. They do. I'm very sorry, froggies. But there's something to that analogy. It keeps coming up. And I think that's, I worry that that's what's going to happen with some of this is that we're not going to realize all of the things that we are giving up until it's a little bit too late because the carriers do have so much control. And because uh, like, like with MP3 audio, they say that younger people prefer the tinniness of the compression in their MP3 music than the nice rich tones you used to get from vinyl and yeah. proper analog speakers. And certainly analog has come back in a nice way for enthusiasts. But there's, there's this sense that we're going to lose something along the way and not realize that we've necessarily lost it. We can always go to lossless flack. <laughs> I do like my flack. Flack is extremely, extremely good. Back to you, Kevin. You, you talked briefly about 5G and how 5G AI is really working with 5G. Does AI help in other networking opportunities or is it just 5G? No. So, I mean, we're... We're really analyzing all sorts of uh, optical networks. We're using the AI to design chips. So this is a strange thing for me. I've been in chips my whole career. And I always thought it was weird that we were designing chips back then so that we could stay on Moore's Law and just keep uh, doubling the number of transistors. Today, we're, we're so, it's amazing what we're doing. We're using light that was 190 nanometers to print features that are way smaller than that. And to do that, we have to calculate the reverse interference of the light. Today, we're printing things with 13 nanometer light that is going down to three nanometers. The amount of optical proximity correction, because photons are bouncing off of everything, we're doing all kinds of simulations in the real world of AI. These are reverse problems. It's actually easy to do the forward calculation. We need to do the reverse calculation. So, so we're doing all sorts of things on 5G, I think it's really important. We've made great strides in the U.S. Things are getting better in rural areas. They just, I saw, passed another $60 billion as part of the infrastructure that's going to go into that. So that's great. But ultimately, there's places in the world that are way behind. Some places like Europe are ahead. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately, we see all kinds of innovation of AI that need network connectivity. They need 5G. They also need super fast wired connections. These two things are going to live together. If you look at that example of uh, medicine, you know, there's lots of places in the world where now everything has been digitalized. You're not taking a CT scan, an x-ray scan anymore with computational tomography and printing that on a, uh, on a piece of, you know, silver Film. nitride. Yeah. It's, it's digitalized. And then you need to send it to somebody and you need AI to look at it, to actually do the analysis and help out the doctors say, hey, look at this one carefully. This looks super important. So I think the network, whether it's 5G, whether it's Wi-Fi and wired and optics, all of them are going to coexist at the same time. And they're all going to have their own innovation vectors. All right. I saw Sean shake your head very briefly when he was talking. And it was around that rural broadband fund. And oh, I'm looking yeah. at your face now and I'm seeing the feelings <laughs> ready to come out. Oh, yeah. So uh, I, I'm working on a story right now about that federal funding. And it's very interesting. Uh, first off, originally it was going to be $100 billion that Biden wanted to have come out and then turned down $65 billion. And now it looks like it's going to be about $41 billion that's actually going to go out there. But the idea is maybe we can finally connect everyone. We can close the digital divide if we roll out that $41 billion appropriately. But 
you know, not having any real choice of broadband, and I know, not having any real choice of broadband for a long time, that it's going to be incredibly difficult to roll out that money appropriately. The allocations are based on faulty broadband maps where the internet service providers were saying, here's where we are, believe us. And the FCC said, sounds good, we can't tell. You're, you're right. If you have one person that has 5G connectivity, then the county has 5G connectivity. In your census block. Yes. Anybody in your census block. They're finally fixing that. You could start to challenge these maps, but maybe not in time before the money comes out. 16 states in the United States have limitations on how that money can be spent in terms of you can't spend it on municipal broadband. So the public money gets used to erect toll bridges that the various carriers and providers own instead of being used to create public roads that the cities own. Yeah, so we, we definitely need it. So some somewhere or another, because I think one of the things we've seen, you know, we, the amount of interesting content from generative AI I think, you know, somebody said, what is the future? They asked Bob Metcalf. And he's like, I don't know, but I loved his line about COVID. Is yeah. That it was, what was it? Uh, <laughs> it was COVIDio. Yeah. <laughs> Collaborative video. Collaborative Thank you. video. That was a great line. And it, we hadn't anticipated that. And yet it was there. I actually worked on video conferencing back in the 90s. And we said it was going to be, I mean, the first call for AT&T was in 1964 at the World's Fair in Chicago. And they said it was the technology of the future. When I left that startup that I was at, I was still convinced it was the technology of the future. And suddenly COVID hit and wow, everybody is doing uh, video calls. So it's interesting how things, when you build that infrastructure, the geniuses in the world, and they're all over the world. We, we tend to, to be a little arrogant here in Silicon Valley, but I've worked all over the world. And, you know, trust me, there's innovative, brilliant people in, in Europe and in Texas and on the East Coast. They will figure out different ways to use these capabilities. So I think we've just got a tremendous excitement going on. I don't know what's going to come, but I know it's going to need a lot of bandwidth and a lot of GPUs and uh, compute capacity because that's just the, the way the world is going today. We have so much data and we can generate so many cool things now. So, Well, I hope from your lips to all the ISP's ears, they start rolling this out. Um, I want to thank you for joining us and I want to thank you guys for joining us. And I also want to, I'm going to do a plug because we've been working with the Computer History Museum on a really, really cool documentary. It's going to be premiering next week and it's called The Final Act of the Lisa. If you know about the Lisa, there's that apocryphal story about it, a bunch of them being buried in a landfill. We got the true story. We got, we got, we found the people who saw this thing happen. It's a super, super cool. The trailer dropped last week. I encourage you to go watch it. I encourage you to go watch the, the video next week. It's going to be super fun. And thank you so much for the Computer History Museum for working with us on this project. It's been awesome. And thank you guys so much for joining us today. All right, we got to take one more break and then we're going to talk about Zelda because I need to talk about Zelda. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. 
Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back. If you're listening to this podcast, there is a pretty good chance that you're already deep into the new Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom. It's a huge hit for Nintendo, selling 10 million copies on the Switch just in the first few days and presumably many more since then. It seems like half The Verge is playing it all day every day. There were even a couple of people who took the day off the day it came out just to play it all day. They're finding new ways to explore Hyrule, new uses for Ultra Hand, and epic new weapons to take down all their enemies. I've been playing too, though not as much as I'd like, and I have lots of questions about why this game seems to work so well, about why there aren't more games like this, and about how in the world I'm supposed to get off this stupid island that I have been stuck on for like three hours. So I grabbed Alex and the Verge's Ash Parish to talk about all of it. Alex, hello. Hello. Ash, hi. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me. I have a million things I want to talk about, but I the first thing we need to do is we just need to like establish some baseline here. I was just looking and I've played like six hours and change of tears of the kingdom. I would like to have played more, but I have a small child who just hit the point where he understands when I'm not looking at him and grabs whatever I'm holding and tries to put it in his mouth. So it has been a challenge, uh, but I will, I will get my numbers up. Alex, how much have you played? And then we're going to get to Ash who I suspect has us just decimated here. I want to caveat that I had to move and go to a wedding. So I too have had struggles, but I've gotten at least five minutes into Zelda. So you've like said the word Zelda out loud at one point in your life is basically what you're coming to this one. Look, <laughs> he got a new arm. Is that a spoiler? Am I allowed to spoil that? No, I think we're good on that one. Also, one of the things we're going to talk about is that there is nothing about this game that has not been spoiled. Ash, hit us with it. How much this game? So I want to caveat this with nothing. I cannot explain <laughs> or <laughs> defend my actions, but uh, I looked today and I have over 175 hours in this game. Hell yeah. yes. I, I haven't no life to game this hard since ever. As you think about it, does that feel like less than you would have thought, more than you would have thought, or like about the right amount? 
Oh, more than I would have thought. Like, I don't do the kinds of things that I'm doing in Zelda. I don't do that for any game. I just don't do it. The only thing that even comes close is maybe like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy XIV. And those are games that are designed to have you play it as long as possible because the content doesn't end. It's ongoing, right? This game has a discrete ending that's somewhere. I just, I ignore it. I refuse to engage with it. I have spent all of my time. uh, I have unlocked every shrine in the underworld. I am working my way back to unlock every shrine in the overworld. And along the way, I get pulled into these neat little side adventures that have just, I keep racking up the hours. I I can't explain it. Okay, well, the rest of this segment is just going to be Alex and I are going to leave. And you can just talk about (laughs) kind of whatever you want for a while because we are not qualified to be here with you. But actually, where I want to start is I want to go back a little bit because obviously this is the the sequel to Breath of the Wild which was this like earth-shatteringly great game in 2017 and like kind of not came out of nowhere but was like an even bigger surprise in how great it was than I think Tears of the Kingdom has been and I'm curious like looking back you know 6 years ago did Breath of the Wild sort of change video games forever there were all these hot takes back then about like this is a new paradigm for how we're going to experience video game and this is just a a whole different universe and things will never be the same did that happen ash what do you think no okay i think that everybody would like to think that breath of the wild changed the world i think breath of the wild changed how we think about games and i definitely think breath of the wild changed like set a bar, like it set a, a, a very new, very high bar about how video games are talked about, like and critiqued by papers of record or whatever. Like it is definitely set that bar high. But as in terms of like changing like the video game landscape, not really. No. I mean, Nintendo is a very unique company. The things that they do, the games that they make, people try, but they just cannot replicate them. It just stands alone as this like extremely high bar that people aim for. And sometimes they get close and we get great games out of that. And sometimes they just completely miss the mark. But at the same time, because Nintendo is so unique, other game developers are like, we can't even do that. We can't touch that. So we're not. We're going to do our own thing. And I don't really honestly think that game development or the kinds of games that we've seen since Breath of the Wild have been too terribly influenced by it. I mean, because Breath of the Wild didn't really do anything too different or crazy. It just presented all of these different elements together in this really unique package, but things that have existed before. Crafting existed before. Open world exploration existed before. We've seen all of these things done before. It's just Nintendo was able to do it in this extremely unique, extremely polished, extremely approachable way that has not existed anywhere else. See, I kind of disagree okay so i don't play games as often as you do obviously i think just where i'm sitting it feels like a lot of the games i've seen especially the triple a games those games that people really get hyped on those games for people like me who don't play a lot of games and we only kind of hop into this space on periodic basis a lot of those games feel really strongly influenced by by zelda particularly the the ability to kind of go everywhere and do kind of anything and then like this could be because before Zelda came out, I was just playing Horizon Forbidden West forever. And that game is like just a direct line from Zelda, like just virtually identical in a lot of ways. Are you sure it's a direct line from Zelda? Because Horizon Zero Dawn was pretty much the same thing. Yeah, but you couldn't float around on a little parachute. 
Okay, 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 you're right. That That is a big... I, I can caveat my previous answer in that the real, the big thing that we've seen from Zelda that everybody else is doing now is paragliding. That is the thing. <laughs> Which is the greatest game mechanic in video games. So, like, in that sense, good job to Zelda. It never stops being fun. And I found myself just, like, playing Horizon for the best, being like, oh, it's just, I can't wait for Zelda. I love doing little floaties and stuff like that. But, yeah, I think, and I feel like we saw a lot of clones or attempts to clone Zelda after the first one came out in 2017. And most of them weren't successful, obviously. But I think it has kind of opened up people's brains. And what I really hope comes from this game is this game is built on the same engine as the last one. And I actually really like that. And I wish more more video game makers would not need to reinvent the wheel every time they do a sequel and sometimes just be like, actually, we just want to like tweak a few mechanics and tell a really cool story and put you back in these spaces. And like, it seems like Zelda is doing that. And everybody should should take note because it works. It's fun for the five minutes I've played so far. I think it would be a really <laughs> worthwhile experience to talk to other game developers at like these AAA mm-hmm. studios. Because one of the things that we're starting to see now are game developers getting their hands on Zeldas and freaking out about how the physics engine works. And remind and mind you, this is still running on the Switch, which is extremely underpowered hardware, right? It doesn't hold a candle to your Xboxes and your PS5s. But you can take, you know, the, the clip that's going around right now is that you have this like, you know, metal rope bridge that you attach to some wheels and you send it across some lava and the physics is just like completely like accurately represented and it it is in this astounding way and i would love to hear game developers talk about why this works so well and how like almost magic it is that nintendo was able to get this work on such underpowered quote-unquote hardware yeah, our colleague Charles Pulliamore talked to the the creative leads, and one of the things they said to him about that was they, like, I think they called it, like, fake physics, where it's this idea of, like, even when it doesn't follow actual physics, it follows how physics sort of should be intuitively. Like, mm-hmm. if you hold a big thing and throw something, it's going to do more damage. And it's, like, intuitively, it tracks, and there's so much of that in this game. Like, mm-hmm. even if the thing that you do wouldn't actually happen in the real world, it feels like it should happen, and it does. And it's it's... I can't explain how that feels, but it's so cool and so unusual in a game like this. But I want to talk about the Switch thing, because this is the thing that has stuck out to me the most. One of the things that has occurred to me is that there's a lot of, like, Roblox and Minecraft in a game like this. It's Mm -hmm. so big. It's so open. It's so about, like, creation and tinkering and playing and, like... At least in my experience so far, the, the actual sort of plot of the thing is kind of ancillary to just, like, figuring out what this world is and what you can do and how it can work. But it works offline, and I can do it in a thing that I hold in my hand. Like, I played it, I played three hours on an Amtrak the other day. Like, I can't play any other games on Amtrak because they all have to be connected. Mm -hmm. They all require really great low-latency interconnect connections. But this, I can, like, pick it up, I hit A three times, I hit A one more time, and I'm back in Zelda. And there's just, like, something about this hardware. It's less powerful. The screen frankly kind of sucks i still have the original switch but there's something about it that was like more enticing than my typical process of like booting up my playstation and waiting an hour for it to load and the internet connection being screwy and it's like it just felt better to me i don't know if that's been y'all's experience but the switch actually feels like perfect for this game to me absolutely i think that's another thing that speaks to nintendo's uniqueness is that they say that they want to be not 
accessible in terms of like accessibility, but accessible as in wide ranging. And because, you know, people are grown and they have grown jobs and they have kids and other people are, you know, their kids, they're, they're like, you know, 10, 11 and 12 years old and they don't have the capability or the interest in doing like, you know, the 4K ray traced crisis, whatever. And that's what makes the switch and by example, this game so accessible because it is, you know, on this cheaper hardware that everybody has and everybody can play. And there is a very relatively low barrier of entry. Like they do that stuff intentionally because they want to appeal to as many people as possible. And it works and it works really well. They know who their audience is. They're not going after, you know, our Tom Warrens who wants everything to be ray traced or whatever. They're not going <laughs> for the people who need to see like every single pore on Kratos's face. That's not, that's never been their bag. That'll never be their bag. And they know that they have the people that will spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on this game alone for the rest of the year. They've got their audience locked in. They're very good at that. And that's why the Switch does what it does. And this game does what it does. And you don't need an internet connection to play it first of all shots fired at tom warren uh tom <laughs> come on this podcast and yell about ray tracing anytime you want we're ready for you but no i think one of the funniest things to me was reading the comments on your review ash and a bunch of people were like oh why didn't you talk about performance it only runs at 30 frames per second and in almost every single case there was a reply to those comments saying yeah it doesn't matter no nope. <laughs> like running zelda at 60 frames per second is not the reason that zelda would be great. Like, that's not how that works. Exactly. And and that's another thing about, you know, this particular game and Nintendo's e business ethos overall is that this game sold 10 million copies in like its first three days, right? And it is completely offline. It is, you know, runs, it has these terrible, you know, 720p graphics and, you know, 30 FPS and people bought it in mass because it doesn't matter. There are no multiplayer options. Uh, as far as we know right now, there is no like microtransactions, no, you know, there'll probably be a story DLC later and stuff you can buy to, you know, add to it or whatever. But, you know, it's it doesn't have a battle pass or anything like that. It's just this single player experience that demands people's attention. And that's kind of refreshing when you have games like Diablo Immortal and when you have games like, I don't know, Call of Duty and, you know, Overwatch, where it, every AAA studio seems like it has to pump out these looter shooters that keep you on a hamster wheel for as long as possible while, you know, they're, you know, taking money out of your wallet. And that's just not what this is. And people respond to that. And I hope more people see that from Breath of the Wild and now Tears of the Kingdom and want to emulate that. Like, there was a while ago where people, the discourse was, you know, single player games are dead because you know, the landscape is dominated by your Fortnites and your Call of Duties. And it took a game, I hope it takes a game like Zelda to, for people to realize, like, that's not the case anymore. One of the things you said in a couple of your stories, Ash, is that A, you've never really fallen for Zelda games mm -hmm. before, um, which is also true of me, including Breath of the Wild. I played it a little, I was like, oh, this is neat. And then I never really had the sort of compunction to keep going. And then you said in another story that you were surprised at how much you liked this game because you tend to need structure and sort of rails to play on, which also resonated with me as somebody who loves like the Arkham Knight games are some of my favorite games ever, because they're just like, go there, do that thing, go there, do that thing, go there, do that thing, run around for a minute if you want, go over there, do that thing, congrats, you win. This is the opposite of that in a way that at various times has been very exciting and absolutely infuriating to me. I spent like 
two and a half full hours walking around on that first island that they drop you on after the training stuff, trying to figure out what the hell to do. And some people are like, that's fun. You get to explore. I think it just sucks. It drives me insane. (laughs) But I'm curious for you what it was that tipped it kind of the other way, where like this game resonated despite being a person like me who needs a game to kind of tell you what to do all the time. You have to make your own rails and put yourself on them. And I think Tears of the Kingdom, more than Breath of the Wild, has a good way of making you make your own rails. And then while you're on the path that you've set for yourself, you can see things like on the periphery that you can go then and explore. So the way that I crafted my own rails is that I wanted to uncover all of the map. So when I first got off the tutorial island down to, you know, Hyrule proper, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to investigate all of the sky towers so I can unlock all of the map. And then when you're traveling from place to place to place, you like, you know, see somebody with a little quest thing up and you're like, oh, okay, this is a low lift thing that I can do while I'm on my main quest, which is not to save Zelda, but, you know, cartographer's experience. And while you're on <laughs> that, like that main quest, you you kind of find these little side quests that you can do on the periphery that kind of like expand from there. And so from after I discovered all of the towers, I next wanted to do the shrines because I like those puzzles. Those puzzles give me good brain feeling, good brain scratch. So, you know, from from the, the towers, I go to the shrines. And then from the shrines, you know, you go to the underworld, which kudos to Nintendo for like completely obscuring that from all of the promotional materials. It was a real treat to explore the depths and go down into the depths for the first time that was that was great and then from there you know i want to explore the explore the depths the depths is this dark place where you can't see like five feet in front of your face for the most part but they have these like little light roots that will light up the area so you can see what you're doing and where you're going so i went completely sick of mode and found every light route in the depths and then from that you know while i'm doing all of these different side quests on the way I learned that there is a one for one the 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 light roots in the depths have a corresponding shrine on the overworld. So by, you know, the transitive property, if I can unlock everything on the depths, I can find their corresponding shrines in the overworld and through that I can unlock the shrines on in Hyrule. And it's completely absorbed my life. (laughs) What kind of inspired you to create those rails? Because I think a lot of games do that. Like Skyrim was one where you you could create your own rails, but also the first time I played Skyrim, I was so overwhelmed by the the breadth of things I could do that I turned the game off. Like it was too much. And then I had to come back and and then I like, okay, I'm going to get into the plot. I'm going to let the plot kind of like get me into the game and then I'm going to go. And in this game, that's not necessarily the case. Like you, you get kind of opened up pretty quickly and then you guys both sounds like are saying, okay, yeah, I'm actually okay with creating my own rails and figuring myself out in this game. What, what was the little twist of this game that kind of like said, okay, I know how to create my rails here in a way I don't typically. I think for me is I don't like exploring without, you know, a direction to go. And I think one thing that was really great and really well done about Tears of the Kingdom is specifically that first part where you have to unlock all the sky towers and the sky towers they illuminate the map but how they do it is that they shoot link up in the air like they're firing him out of a cannon and you have to and you go up and then there's this like breath and pause like you're on top of a roller coaster before he starts plummeting to the to the ground and the thing that you know makes tears of the kingdom such a triumph 
technically speaking, is that you can see everything. And when the closer you get to the ground, you can start to see little visual points of interest. Like, oh, that looks cool. I want to go over there. Or, oh, I can see the shrine from up here. So I'm going to go over there. So that's how I was inspired to like create this own you know, system for me to follow because I know that when I'm doing this, I will find other things that are also interesting on the way. And I could just build my entire experience just from that, just from that like little thrill of discovery. That is cool. What's your strategy as a explorer like that? Are you like a read a thousand guides on the internet and go for it? Are you like a die a million times, see what happens? Like what's your, you like land on Hyrule, where do you go? What's your plan? It's like a bit of a happy medium between the two. So I got on to the ground and I'm like, oh crap, what next? I don't know what to do. This is too big. I don't want to do this. I guess I'm just going to mainline this main story quest and see what happens. You just described the part of the game I am at precisely right now. That feeling is exactly where I'm living right now and I need to get out of it. Exactly. And then I'm like, okay, well, Pura told me that if I unlock this sky tower, I can see more of the area and it'll help them with their thing. And then I got up and then I looked down and I'm like, okay, I can do this. That looks interesting. That's a shrine. What's that over there? What are these cool little, I don't know, drawings on the earth? What What is that? I want to see what that is. And through that like initial experience, I was able to create this like branching web that set me on this path to have like 175 hours in this game. It was completely not by design at all, all like totally emergent gameplay. And I think now that the game is out, Like, you know, before a game is out, like you're kind of on your own. You have to figure it out because you have no help. But now that the game is out and the guides writers are doing the Lord's work by putting up all these like, you know, guides and walkthroughs and whatever. Whenever there's a time when I get stuck or my patience wears a little thin, I can now like look up something and it can help me. Like, I don't need a step-by-step now because I've had so much time in the game. I don't need a step-by-step like walkthrough of what to do. I just need a hint for where to go and I can figure it out myself. And I like doing that. Like I, I tend to, I get that little, that feeling of, I didn't need any help. And I did this all by myself because I'm a big girl. So I, I have, I, I get too much of a good feeling out of that to want to look up guides too much, but there are some parts where I get like, okay, this is too much. I need a little help. Tell me where to go. So it's a little bit of A and B. Yeah. Quick plug both for the stuff that you and Charles and Andrew have done on our site and also our friends at Polygon who put together like the most detailed guide I've ever seen. That interactive map is ridiculous. It's incredible. If you need to know anything about Tears of the Kingdom, it's in Polygon's guide somewhere. It's very good. We'll put it in the show notes. The thing about all of this, though, is I think there's like something amazing that this game has done with kind of the way it thinks about puzzles, right? And you can put things together and you can use Ultra Hand to move things around and fuse things. And I sensed in your review, Ash, that you were struggling with the tension between like, okay, this dynamic is very cool. I can do so much stuff. This world is big and cool and exciting and open. And is that all coming at the expense of like making me care about the characters and story and sort of world that I'm in? Do you still feel that having, you know, 178 hours in, do you do you find yourself sort of more attached to the the people, places and stories than you did? Or do you still kind of feel that tension? I wish I could care more about these people and I don't. And they try to make you care and it just doesn't work. It's, it's just you, you bounce right off of them, I think, more so than what I did in Breath of the Wild. So it's it's much different in Breath of the Wild, the way the story is told, because it made you 
care about the characters that you were the champions right and they and they were already dead Mm -hmm. so you go through the game and link doesn't have his memories and you go find the memories and you relive these memories of these people and like oh what i have a soft spot for you like because you know you we were friends i don't remember you anymore and I, i you know and but I can't have that friendship now because you're gone. And I think that created a sweeter, better narrative moment than anything Tears of the Kingdom has done. Because Tears of the Kingdom story might as well not even be mentioned. You have to save Zelda. And there's a really hot goat dude. And there's a really hot archaeologist dude. And there's, you know, a really hot city full of women. And there's a, a really hot fish guy. And that's it. It is like an unusually <laughs> sexy Nintendo video game, I will say. Nintendo is funny because they totally realized that everybody was like, were super horny for the fish prince and they were like okay calm down we're gonna marry this guy off in hopes that you guys will like chill out and you know it's not gonna work but i i I could totally clock that they did like you know what y'all are too much let's let's get our boy married up and away from you sickos so i mean there's nothing better than a sexy bad guy that's just true i mean i so one of the things i think is so interesting about breath of the wild and seems to have really influenced tears of the kingdom and ash this is a question for you and i'm curious if you're going to get to like from 178 to like five hundred hours because the magic of breath of the wild was that like still now people are playing it and discovering new things they can do and new ways to beat the game and it's an increasingly weird vibe over in breath of the wild i think people are just like getting real weird with it Mm -hmm. how to do everything is tears of the kingdom gonna have that same thing where like you're gonna be able to sort of play the game a hundred different ways a hundred times and six years from now you're still going to be finding new things about it oh absolutely what i'm starting to see are people like recreating the tricks and the trick shots from breath of the wild into tears of the kingdom but like the thing that is like dominated the discourse for the weird things that you can do is korok torturing which makes me very sad because they're just baby it's It's it's, so weird i don't i don't understand like you people need therapy those are the little guys with the leaf faces right yes and then in Breath of the Wild, like you found them in these like weird places and they gave you a little seed and then you collected all like yeah, 900. Go, uh-huh. Yeah. Like, yeah, ha-ha, you found me. And then you get like 900 of them. And then the payoff for doing that is like really lackluster. So I guess people are taking their frustrations out on them in this new game. I definitely was going to do it and I didn't on the first one. No, I can't bring myself to do it. But there are so many different varying ways that you can violate Geneva Conventions in this game that is going to give this game (laughs) just as long a tail as Breath of the Wild had because your creativity is limitless the number of with the number of different devices that you have and the ways that you can deploy them we're going to be seeing crazy stuff in perpetuity like and that's the most exciting thing about tears of the kingdom for me is because i'm not that creative i'm not really a good builder like i don't i don't get joy from that at all like i just want to make the thing that is the most functional that will do its purpose i don't need any kind of flash or panache or anything like that i don't have the patience for it but watching other people do that stuff is like i have a good time i could watch hours of it and just the fails too in addition to like all of the successes like you know you you jump up and then you know link accidentally gets hit in the head with his own creation because it fell out of the sky or something like that i love that stuff and i can't wait to see that stuff i can't wait to see speedrunners break this game they have already they're gonna break it more and i can't wait to see that and just see all like the oh that's brilliant like just today like the the things that i'm learning from people is just so fulfilling to me like there's in the depths you know it's dark and they have like a little zonai device that is like a flashlight right that you can use it consumes energy but you can use it to light it up but i saw someone today like they made like a little cart to drive around in the depths and instead of sticking a light 
a lamp on it that consumes energy, they stuck one of those little bright bloom seeds that you have that, you know, that you can throw that will light up an area like a static flashlight. And I'm like, I never thought of that. It's so brilliant. It doesn't consume any energy. That's cool. Yeah. Just the things that I'm learning from people like that is far more exciting to me and pays off so much more to me than just like my own experience that even in itself has been extremely rewarding. And Nintendo always says that they don't intend for people to do the weird stuff, but it's like, Nintendo, come on, like, we know. Come on. You you want people to do the weird stuff. Yeah. If you're going to give people, what's the line in Mythic Quest, the, like, time to (laughs) penis? penis. And it's like, Nintendo knows, right? Like, this is a thing. It's going to happen. It's great content. Everybody wins. I mean, if they didn't want us to do it, like, they would not have given us all of the different weird things that they gave us. Like, there's one Zonai device that's called a stabilizer, and I've only used it, like, maybe twice. It's a thing that where you hit it, it will orient everything attached to it, like, straight up at, like, a 90-degree angle, right? It seems like the most useless thing like throughout the course of the game that I've played because like I said I've only used it like once and that's because they give it to you in a shrine but seeing people like out in the wild like make use of it I'm like oh okay yeah that wasn't for any kind of thing that they thought oh this is cool this is specifically a sicko enabling device this is for people because they want people to do crazy stuff and they know it would make it easier if they had something that will make sure that whatever you make will stand the way that you wanted to make and that's why that was made you can see it Ash, your job is to turn sicko enabling device into an official <laughs> video game term. Um, we're going to make this happen. This, this is this is it. That is the official term. SEDs. This is, this is everything. All right. We all have more hours to play. Alex, we're going to check in on Friday and every Friday from now on to see who, which of us has played more. It's going to be great. Ash, Alex, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's it for The Vergecast today. Thanks to everyone who came on the show, and thank you so much for listening. I have a lot of Tears of the Kingdom to play, and I appreciate you listening to this podcast instead of playing Tears of the Kingdom. That is a great honor. There's a whole lot more from this conversation at TheVerge.com. As always, we'll put some links in the show notes, but read the website. It's a good website. If you have thoughts, questions, feelings, or ultra-hand tips you want to tell me about, you can always email us at VergeCast at TheVerge.com or call the hotline, 866-VERGE-11. We love hearing from you. Send all your thoughts and questions. And starting next week, we're going to do a hotline question every single episode. So keep them coming, and we're going to get through as many as we can. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Brooke Minters is our editorial director of audio. The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Neelai, Alex, and I will be back on Friday to talk about Microsoft Build, Instagram's new text-based social network, and all the other news of the week. See you then. Rock and roll. <laughs>